You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. Here are your hosts, Jay Fennell and Paul Wilkinson. Hello again, Life Group Leaders. This is uh, Jay Fennell and uh, Paul Wilkinson. Say hello, Paul. Hey, guys. Welcome to the Life Group Leader Podcast for Brentwood Baptist Church and we're at it again this week, and we're excited about a new lesson on uh, the Transforming Truths curriculum. Uh, and we are this week going to be looking at creation. This is the week of February the 20th, and we've got a lot to look forward to here, count down these, uh, these Transforming Truths that are so important for us to know. Before we jump into uh, the lesson helps today and just talk a little bit about creation and the scripture in general, uh, let's hit up some, some announcements really quickly and just kind of remind you of some things we've got coming up here or in full swing right now. So go ahead, Paul, lead us off. Uh, the first thing are spring meetings. This is where we meet one-on-one with you guys. You should have already gotten an email. All the calendars are there with available time. So you'll just pick an hour, hour and a half when you're available. And we'll sit down with you, talk about your group life, talk about you, uh, ways we can grow, and plans for the upcoming year. Also, I want to remind you about Engage Middle Tennessee, April the 8th. A great opportunity for a group to, uh, for your group and other groups involved in the church, not only on the Brentwood campus, but all across all the campuses, participating, serving our community, Middle Tennessee going to be fun. We did it last year. We'd love to see more folks, more groups involved this year. And so we'll have some information for you on that very soon as we move forward and get closer to that date, Engage Middle Tennessee. Cluster trainings are going now. Again, um, I've got everybody split into cohorts. So they're with like contextual life group leaders. So people that serve the same sort of people you serve at the same times you serve. Uh, we'll meet three times throughout the year, twice between now and summer, and then once again in fall. And this time we'll be covering Life Group Essentials, how to help and empower our group members to become engaged, and that'll certainly promote their spiritual health. And then lastly, I want to mention some options after Transforming Truths. Uh, we requested the seven-week alignment with the preaching team. It'd be great if you finished out the rest of the lessons in this book, because again, we're high on theology and it certainly impacts the way we live our lives. If you are going to depart, then we would encourage you to maybe try the sermon series and remain in alignment or go back to one of the other travel logs with the spiritual disciplines are always needed uh, within the body or maybe one of the biblical theology texts like God's unfolding story or the Christology, encountering Christ in the scriptures. All of that's good stuff. So we recommend it highly. And if you need help with any curriculum uh, decisions, options, or opportunities, please reach out to Paul or me, and we will be glad to help you and maybe give you some direction. You know, Paul, over the last number of weeks, has been talking about the various spaces of church life and the different elements that each space of church life might would bring to a group uh, or to an individual or to a group. And so this week, Paul uh, spoke or wrote a blog about divine space. I believe that's right. And he wants to kind of unpack that just for a few minutes here in this podcast episode to kind of talk about the the importance of divine space, the intimacy that it provides, and ways in which it can be used for spiritual formation. That's right. So the spaces, again, public space would be the largest. That'd be like our corporate worship. And then you have social and personal spaces, which are most of our life groups. And then you have transparent spaces, 
This will be groups of three to maybe six. And then you have divine space, which will just be you and the Holy Spirit sitting in the presence of the Lord, enjoying the presence of the Godhead, meditating on scripture and so forth. So what you'll find as you go down these spaces from the public to the divine, that accountability uh, greatly increases. And so it's in this divine space that we get a tremendous amount of accountability as the scriptures impact us, as the spiritual disciplines uh, impact us. And those have an impact on the way we do the rest of our life. If my disciplines aren't in order uh, with my biblical study or with my prayer or whatever other discipline you feel called to do, whether it's fasting, journaling, scripture memory, whatever it is, then our impact in corporate worship is going to be different. The way we lead out in personal spaces are all going to be different. So it's in this divine space where we come to our identity in Christ, and it's where we um, come to the fullest account, I think, uh, of who Christ has called us to be so that we can go live out boldly now in the rest of these spaces. So you find that the other spaces just don't impact the way they ought to impact if the divine space is lacking in some way. So we need to encourage our members to take their personal spiritual disciplines seriously. We have the self-guided resource option within the Journey On strategy where you can really immerse yourself in a topic or a spiritual discipline or whatever else it is. And I would love to talk to any of you guys about that and the availability of it for your group members. Um, so then again, for us as leaders, are we encouraging divine spaces? And then are we as leaders taking advantage of our divine space so that we are, as Jay says, teaching out of our overflow, that we've marinated in the scriptures, we marinated in prayer enough so that the Holy Spirit is just pouring out of us as we're as we're passing on this knowledge and these truths and these ideas of transformation onto our people. My father-in-law says from time to time, he's a pastor, he says, uh, you can't give what you ain't got. Hmm. And that's so true. Um, we ourselves as leaders who've been called to lead people um, are expected, but also given the opportunity and the privilege to grow in the divine space as we spend time with, with the Lord. And he's pouring into us as we are understanding who he is more and more through the word of God, as we communicate with him through prayer, as we meditate on the scriptures, all the disciplines that we do on a daily basis begin to um, fill us and help us to be the sort of leaders, spiritual leaders that we need to be. So it's so crucial, uh, probably one of the first places where your leadership begins to lack is because you you or me have been undisciplined in our time with the Lord. So uh, please don't neglect that divine spaced time. It's so, so crucial for you in your development as a leader, but not only that, but in every area of your life as a husband, as a wife, as a daughter, as a son, as a co-worker, as a boss, wherever you find yourself in life. You've got to be filled with God's Spirit who is empowering you and teaching you and giving you the words you need uh, to live out the life that God has called you to live in this world. So, good stuff, Paul. Thanks for your kind of unpacking some of those spaces for us. It's really important for us to know. So, as we look as we look to the, the lesson this week, lesson chapter 6 in the Transforming Truth curriculum, this week we're going to be Taking a look at creation, the title of the chapter is Creation, His Plan, and His Purpose. And you know, one of the first things that God chooses to reveal about Himself is that He is Creator. Genesis 1-1, the very first verse in the Bible, 
says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so I think it's important to note that he didn't create the universe because he lacked anything or because he was needy. Uh, you know, he created the universe out of the overflow of his own love and glory to show his greatness and demonstrate his excellence in the world. And, and so he chose to create us, which is a really cool thing, right? I mean, he chose to create uh, humans, and he also chose to create humans in his image. So he, he is creator God, which, you know, as humans who were created in the image of God, that should bring great dignity and value to us. And we should... Uh, embrace that. But I think one of the things we find in Scripture, and we'll unpack this a little bit, I think, as we move forward with this particular podcast, is that we know that God is distinct from creation, and but yet He is intimately involved in creation. We know that creation is dependent on God. Uh, and because God is creator, He is distinct and independent of creation, and nothing in creation is worthy of the affection that God deserves. God is eternal. And so as we move into some of this uh, idea uh, or, or this transforming truth that God is creator, uh, and there's a divine plan to this creation, um, well, one of the first things we want to do is just maybe take a, take a look at what some of the other religions and philosophies might be saying about this whole idea of creation. Paul, kick us off and talk to us a little bit about um creation as seen in other faith systems and philosophies. And Didway speaks about this on page 63 of our travel log, and he talks about the other pagan religions around um, having a faith where, where, where God is also a material thing, not distinct from, not over, uh, is essentially a part of the system as well. And so for me as a philosopher and my passion for history of philosophy, you look at some of the huge names like Plato and Aristotle, and they have something very similar to that. Plato had what he called his demiurge, which is essentially just a carpenter kind. I mean, that's the best way to think about it, I guess. And there's all this material stuff already existing and the demiurge crafts it. It's the divine grand craftsman that now takes this existing material and fashions it into what we see as our universe. And then Aristotle just had a prime mover. He had this somewhat odd, I mean, he's unique, but this theory of all these different spheres that make up our universe, all spinning and twisting and doing all sorts of things. And the question is, how do they start moving? So he needed something to kick all that off. So he had a prime mover um, for whom was something of supreme worth and value, which we like as Christians, that understanding. And then all these spheres moved um, in order to emulate that one or or to be a part of that one, but he's not as distinct from creation as we have with the Abrahamic religions uh, revealed in Genesis, where there was nothing, and then at a moment, through God's command, he speaks into existence the stuff we see called our universe. On page 60, Dr. Didway uses a, a term that may not be very familiar to you, um, and it's a it's a term... Is it Latin, Paul? What is that? Yeah, it is. Latin. Uh, and I, I'm going to botch the pronunciation. I practiced a little bit prior to the podcast, but I think I'm going to mess it up this time. But I think it's called uh, Creatio Ex Nihilo, uh, which stands for out of nothing. Was that pretty good, Paul? Did yeah. I pronounce it correct? It works for me. Okay, all right. About the best as I've always heard it. Uh, but basically what that 
speaks to is that at the time of creation, nothing existed but God. Um, that God created something out of nothing. And that's a pretty important point to make as we think about creation. Uh, Hebrews 11.3 speaks to that, Paul, right? Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, Hebrews 11.3 talks about things um, that that are visible now came from things that weren't appearing or not appearing things or, as most translations are going to say, invisible things. Um, this is the same word used for appearing um, that the angel comes to Joseph in the dream to tell him to stick by Mary. So the angel appears. And then Jesus post-resurrection as he appears to the disciple. It's the same word. So um, through the invisible things, God brought about the appearing things that we see as we look around. So one danger of that, of course, is to say that the um, that the invisible things are still actual stuff that we just can't see. Maybe some sort of immaterial stuff, but still stuff. And we definitely have to fight against that because uh, it's just not the biblical witness overall. So you see from Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. So there was nothing, and then God created and brought about. And then we also see um, different forms of theism, uh, pantheism, panentheism, and then... I mean, I guess the eternally existing universe can fit within either of those. But uh, if you if you look at the teacher help for today at um, adults.journeyonleadership.com for this lesson, I have a bunch of circles on a page and God's name in one circle and the universe in another circle. And what biblical theism wants to say is that there's two distinct circles that aren't touching in any way and that God creates and brings about the universe. What pantheism would say is that God and the universe are the same exact circle, that that God is the universe, pan meaning all, theism meaning God. So you get the universe itself as being divine or God. And if you remember from the way God reveals himself in an earlier lesson of this book, is that um, creation cries out and bears witness to God's reality. It doesn't bear witness that it is God or is divine in some way. And then panentheism is a is a stranger thing. Uh, it pops up here and there throughout history and was popular in the mid-1900s with a view called process theology. And what panentheism says is that God and the universe grow and evolve together. So they're not necessarily one and the same, but God encompasses the universe and they both develop and grow together. But again, the biblical witness says that God is not the universe. God doesn't evolve with the universe. That God, distinct from the universe, brings it about into being from nothing. And that's what we want to preserve is the biblical witness. And then the other thing I'd add to hop back on what Jay said earlier about God being, uh, or that creation bringing God ultimate affection and excellence and worth. So referring back to what Jay said a few minutes ago about um, God's excellence being shown in his creation and him being of supreme worth because of his majesty in creation, uh, it goes back to the significance of the Trinity, which we've done over the last three uh, weeks. And again, you come to such a doctrine as the Trinity and you say, there's no way we can fully understand this. Um, it's easy to take a defeatist attitude and say, what's the approach? I mean, what's the point, I mean, to say, if we can't fully understand it, then what are we really doing as we go after it? But I think the doctrine of the Trinity is so significant for the doctrine of creation. Because like Jay said, God didn't bring about creation because of a lack of of anything in himself and the distinctiveness of the trinity and the christian doctrine can really support and defend that claim that god wasn't lacking anything because there's relationship within the godhead 
So when there was nothing in the universe except God, so before angels, before everything, you have the spirit in relationship with the Son and the Father, and then likewise through the other two persons. So that this idea of an overflowing of their love and their relationship makes a lot of sense for creation, as opposed to a, a single person uh, needing something and then creating. So he'll have an object to love. The, the Trinitarian God just didn't need that because it was already love present, already relationship and community present. That's an amazing reality to consider. It goes to show you just how, how yet, once again, we are created in the image of God. We are created for community. Uh, that's why one of the one of the things that's so important for us as believers, as followers of Jesus, is to be interdependent of other believers. That we are uh, not independent of them, but interdependent. Not dependent, but interdependent of other believers in the sense that we uh, are doing life with them, we're growing with them, we're connected with them as we move forward toward Jesus and toward Christ-like life. Um, and it's an amazing thing to consider that the Godhead is a perfect community, a perfect loving community of three persons who um, loved, loved one another, loved one another prior to creation, were lacking nothing, didn't need the universe to, you know, complete anything that they were missing. They don't necessarily need uh, glory and love from from a from a from creation, but they chose to create uh, to demonstrate the greatness of the Godhead, to demonstrate the glory, and to sh- share the love that the community of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit shared. Yeah. So it's an amazing, amazing thing. Our, our verse this particular week uh, that we're going to be focusing on is Psalm one hundred four. Just a great, great section of scripture in the Psalms that just really speak to God as creator. Some of this really big language here that really should uh, fill our hearts with praise and with adoration for God. And yeah, so part of what brings that adoration to our hearts is this idea of God as sustainer. So we talked about creatio ex nihilo, where God creates out of nothing, but in it seems like the biblical witness says he's not doing that anymore. The seventh day of Genesis 1, God rests. Uh, most take that to mean he's not creating out of nothing anymore. And yet, he's still active and involved in nature. So we get adoration of his excellence and majesty and glory in that he creates out of nothing. But then he also sustains the universe in its being and all that we're allowed to do, become a part of um, the laws and the regularities of nature so that we can live life, not wondering if we're going to float off into space tomorrow. All of that is God's sustaining hand. Um, and then one issue, of course, that pops out of it is ideas of evil. So God's sustaining mm-hmm. the very regularities and realities that permit some evils in the world. And one response I like to give to people is that God also sustained the very realities that allowed his son to die on the cross. So the Father and the Spirit and the Son all held together the biological workings, the chemical workings of Jesus, the spear in the side, the suffocation on the cross. And it was a horrifying thing. It was an evil thing because Jesus would be the one man that we would say is innocent and undeserving. And and yet he did that and he did it for a very important reason, and that is to redeem his people. So there is some tension with God sustaining a universe um, in the midst of great suffering, nevertheless. 
through that suffering, he brings about his good and his will and his glory and eternal salvation for there's a plethora of people. Once again, it's God is not dependent upon creation. Creation is dependent upon God for, for sustenance. He's, he's distinct but heavily involved in creation every second of the day. One of the things, Paul, that I think might come up uh, in, in conversation with uh, folks uh, in life groups this week as we speak about creation is this whole idea of young earth and old earth philosophy. Um, talk to us a little bit about what each one of those is and then maybe some cautions that we take or maybe some ways to approach this as we move forward teaching about creation this week. Yeah, I think it's definitely going to come up in your groups because it is a big issue. And I'm glad Jay called it a philosophy because that's what I think it is. I don't think the inerrancy or inspiration of Scripture is at stake here because um, you get inerrantists and infallibilists who believe some in young earth, some in old earth. I think Didway handles it the way we ought to handle it um, on page 64. He says... Um, what should concern us is that all that exists does so through the direct creative activity of God. He is the creator and sustainer of the created order. And that's what we need to highlight for our people. Nevertheless, we need to be ready with answers for these questions. So uh, there's, there's a number of ways to different handle it. And there's, and there's so many arguments on both sides. And you can find some of those arguments, again, at the teacher help for this week. Because I wanted to prepare you for this question because it's definitely a rabbit you could chase the entire group time and maybe not get to the spiritual transformation part that you would like to get to. So um, you can look up some of those arguments through the teacher help or um, various websites online. What I would say, and I think the biggest thing to keep in mind, is that it depends on how you approach the text as how you interpret the text. And that's why I'm glad Jay called it a philosophy more so than uh, scripture interpretation or something of the like. So, for instance, when I go and read about Daniel's 70 weeks, I don't say you're not taking that literally if you tell me that's 490 years, because that's the biblical witness to that. Um, it's, it's not being literal to take it as 70, uh, 70 weeks, which would be 490 days. It's not. It's years. And then the Bible unpacks that for us. And the reason I know that is because that's apocalyptic prophetic literature, and I approach it that way. Likewise, I think about Jesus in his parable about the mustard seed. And Jesus was omniscient. If Jesus was truly divine, then he had to know all things. Nevertheless, the mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds, and I have to believe that Jesus knew that. Nevertheless, he was teaching a parable to a particular people who were familiar with a particular family of seeds, and he used one uh, to make his point. And that doesn't mean Jesus is wrong, and it doesn't mean I'm not taking the text literally. It just means I know that the text is a parable. So now let's think about Genesis 1. If I come to Genesis 1 and maintain that Genesis 1 is pure history, so this isn't a question of true or false, this is a question of history, then of course you should be a young earth creationist, because it says seven days. If you approach it um, as something other than history proper, that's not to say it's not true, but you approach it as something other than history, maybe a polemic against pagan religions, maybe a great hymn or a poem. Well, then just like I don't impose a 24-hour day on each of each of Daniel's 70 weeks, and just like I don't impose error on Christ with the mustard seed, likewise, you wouldn't take those days literally. You would do something like their ages 
or eras in which God brings different things about. So it's not that you're denying all the historicity of it. It's that the text is telling you something broader. Um, so those would be the two major ways to come about it. Um, and, and again, the text leads you where it does based on how you approach it. And there's even other interpretations. So like Philo, who was a philosopher, he thought that the universe was made in a literal moment. So what we get in Genesis 1 is a literary framework to describe the beauty and majesty of that singular moment. But he thought it was crazy that it would take God more than an instant to create anything. So the idea of seven days was just absurd to him. So he would be an extreme moment creationist, not even a, he'd be a super younger creationist maybe. <laughs> wow. Well, I think the, thank you, Paul, for that, for helping us think through that. I think one of the keys for you as a leader is to, um, is to handle both views, perhaps. If you felt like you wanted to tackle this, I would at least be prepared to, to speak on it because you could have some people in there who might be pretty passionate about one or the other. And, um, and so to have some working knowledge of each would be important. Young Earth, Old Earth, uh, philosophy of the creation of the world. Um, but I think the proper approach would be to give both views and feel free to give your view. But I think it would be um, appropriate to, to give both views and let folks determine where they land on, on that view. Yeah, and one thing I like to say is we try to be dogmatic where the Bible is, and we try to show grace where there's not a, a good particular interpretation forced on us. And if you just think back over the past uh, five weeks or so, I doubt anyone argued with you or there was much debate about the historical resurrection of Jesus, about the fact that God reveals himself, about the Trinity. We don't debate those things because they're clear in Scripture. Now we come to this, and I imagine you're going to get a little debate in it. And what that tells me is that it's a secondary or maybe even a tertiary issue that's more for a philosophical discussion than a, quote, textual, proper discussion. Yeah. At the end of the day, I think what's most important is this understanding that God is creator, that he's sustainer. What does that mean? Uh, how, how do we know? What does that mean? What does that tell us about who God is? Uh, and then what does that tell us about who we are um, as his creation? So let's talk about that, just, uh, Paul, about what's at stake here, the so what uh, of all this. I think one of the things that comes to my mind is that, you know, we, we clearly see God's care and concern for his creation. And so if that's true and we as, as humanity are created in his image, what, what, what does this imply regarding the importance of our own stewardship of, of creation? One of the things that I think about it might be a good question to ask to your people. Uh, as you're unpacking this, uh, this isn't a, that's not a political question. <laughs> that's not a, you know, right side of the aisle, left side of the aisle. That's just straight up follower of Christ, you know, belong to God. How, how do we steward the creation, this world that God's given to us? Yeah, that's, that's good. And that's part of the, the mandate for us as believers and as creatures is to steward in some sense this corrupted and decaying universe because of our sin. Uh, so, so how do we maintain it well as it's groaning out wanting to be recreated as we are I think what's at stake is um, a crucial understanding of our God as not pantheistic not panentheistic as, a, as an immaterial being as a personal being not some kind of machine or blind force that brings about material stuff but a personal creator God who was totally fulfilled in community that then chose freely to create the universe 
that is a rare idea within the history of thought, whether it be religious, philosophical, or, or otherwise. And it's certainly the biblical witness of Genesis. So we have to get this right. Otherwise, we our, our prayers become awkward, I think, if you're just praying to a blind force or if you're praying to a God who who is who is the universe itself i mean that's not what we're doing we're not we're not praying to a blind force or 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 an immaterial universe or a material universe i mean to say we're praying to a personal god who is sustaining this universe and interacting with his creation redeeming it um and then how do we live well one we live in a way that represents that well so you've already mentioned jay that we live in community as the trinity is in community um we take care of the creation because god created it good um, that word good, I've read in many places, means aesthetically pleasing, beautiful. So we revel in the beauty of God and see it in his creation. Um, the fact that God is sustaining the universe and that created us in, in his image and created the universe good all speaks to intrinsic value and worth for us. And so that is the genesis and the basis for how we treat other people well, because they're made in the image of God too. They're image bearers as we are. And so they deserve a certain amount of respect just because of that. Mm -hmm. So the way we treat the environment, the way we treat others, the way we understand community, uh, the way we understand beauty and purpose in the universe, material universe itself, all stems from a proper view of creation as it's reflective of God's nature. And it also should elicit praise and adoration for God. The writer of the Psalm begins in verse one, my soul praise Yahweh. Praise God, Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with majesty and splendor. This is what bubbled up out of his heart as he uh, pondered the greatness of God and how through all that it was made, he, he is the one that created. Uh, that's a powerful and mighty God we serve. And so I'm, I'm hoping that as you study these scriptures this week, that your heart would be, uh, would be enriched and, and you would have adoration also as you ponder uh, the wonderful workings of our God as uh, th through as we see through creation his beauty and his majesty and his excellence. It's going to be a good week. Look forward to the conversations and some of the things that we hear coming out of groups um, as you unpack the scripture and talk about God the creator and talk about creation. Uh, we're excited to hear about what uh, God is doing in your group through the study of his word. Any last comments, Paul? Uh, we, we appreciate all you do. Uh, we're proud of you for sticking with this theology, learning some new terms, and supporting it well in your groups. And it's going to bear it's going to bear much fruit. God gets bigger and bigger the more we think about him and, and the more radical and creative and awesome he becomes. So there's, there's going to be much fruit born from all of your labors. And next week we've got a really great treat. We're going to have Roger Severino on the podcast. He'll be sitting That's right, here. Roger. We're usually sitting down here with, uh, with Paul Wilkinson, so we look forward to having Roger on the podcast next week. But until then, hope you have a great week, great group gathering that, uh, when you meet, and we look forward to uh, seeing you and being with you next week.